Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion, and this is Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. I'm here again with David S. Goyer, showrunner and executive producer. And joining us today is also co-executive producer and writer Victoria Morrow. Hello. 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 Today we are talking about Episode 9, The First Crisis. And you have to know this by now, but I'm going to say it once again. Spoilers are in this episode. If you have not (laughs) watched The First Crisis, stop now. Go back and watch it. What are you doing listening to podcasts before you watch (laughs) Quick recap for the first crisis. It is a standoff on Terminus between the Anacreans, the Thespans, and the Foundation. Azura's plot is revealed, and it is part of a much larger conspiracy. And is that Harry Seldon's music? Foundation, the official podcast, is your guide to the galaxy from Trantor to Terminus. And Anacreon space is a huge place. We aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything you see on this show. Uh... Victoria, thank you for joining us. And um, what was it like uh, writing this episode? What was it like pulling all this together? It was a really fun episode because it's a very penultimate episode. There's just a lot of like it's a steam rolling engine train. It's I also, a train. It's a um, a lot of bodies drop. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's interesting that uh, I've known we can reveal this. I've known Victoria since I was in college. <laughs> so like five years now. And, uh, Are you driving yet? Did you get your license? Yeah. And um, never worked together, uh, but I called you up and asked you to work on this, and you thought I was just completely insane because this is not the kind of thing you typically work on. At all. And I think it's worth telling that origin story, if you will. The origin story of our friendship? Or N- no, because I don't think we need to go back that far. No, but just, just the, I remember you were just like, why in the hell? yeah. That part when I first approached you, and I think I sent you the first episode. Yeah, I think we were talking about genre, and you said, it's still character. It's still, it's something you can do. You can do this, I think is what you actually said. Yes. Um, And I said, I'm afraid of non-gravity. I'm afraid of, you know, (laughs) anything non-Earth-based. And he said, they're still human. And then uh, gave me uh, a pile of sci-fi books and like a whole bunch of recommendations. Like, I tell you what. Once you read Foundation, but while you're at it, you know, read this, this, and this. And Which this. probably terrified you more. Or to- totally, not. completely, yeah. completely. Because you had written on shows like, obviously, Weeds mm-hmm. and Deadwood mm-hmm. wow. and Big Love. Yep. Is that another one? Yep. Wow, that's three yeah. super not Foundation shows. Three Grand Slam home runs, though. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So what is, your, what is your relationship to sci-fi, to genre, and 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 how did you bring your own kind of like writing uh, personal space to this project? I think um, it, much in the same way that, that Deadwood was its own genre and you're putting characters in its own backdrop that mm-hmm. is, you know, its own way. It's got its own rules and it's surreal. Um, I think Foundation was the same thing. Like I'm, I'm just starting with character and I'm starting with like who's butting up, who's got resentments about people or betrayal or you, who wants something else. Have you ever read a science fiction book? Prior nope. to Foundation. Nope. Had you ever seen a science fiction movie? Unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> Not even Star Wars. Or, I know. I haven't even I seen know. Star Wars. Which, which is and, crazy. Yeah. But yeah. my whole point was, great. I want, <laughs> yeah. I want people like that on the show. Because right. it's, it's, it's not going to break out 
if we can't reach people like you. Mm-hmm. So I kept yeah. saying, I'll take care of the the nerdy stuff. The zap guns. Yeah. <laughs> the zap guns. <laughs> Do you have like a favorite uh, foundation gadget slash sci-fi thingy now? I know. I think there's two things. I think yeah. there's two bracelets, which are fascinating. One two is bracelets. The, There's two bracelets. It, when uh, Lars Akavim takes off the bracelet during the uh, oh, yeah, yeah, during yeah, the lawyer yeah. and says, like, it's cool, we can talk now. Come on, that's a bracelet. <laughs> and the second bracelet. It's a bracelet that, that allows people not to hear what you're saying. That's right. It's a special bracelet. It's a yeah. magic bracelet. And the second one is obviously the force field bracelet so that you can jump yeah. off a thing and end up with bruises. Who wouldn't want that? Not the Prime Radiant, huh? It's easy cool to gadget. love the Prime Radiant, mm-hmm. and it's easy to love the Vault, but I like the more mundane that, mm-hmm. that kind of affect the personal, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I don't, I don't need a galaxy blown up. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just a magic bracelet. Please. Uh, this episode is, is, you know, about revelations, about narrative. It opens with a really thought-provoking uh, narration from Gail about history and its relationship to narrative, its relationship to story, what gets left out of the official narrative. Ask a historian, what was mankind's greatest invention? Fire? The wheel? The sword? I would argue it's history itself. History isn't fact, it's narrative, one carefully curated and shaped. Under the pen strokes of the right scribe, a villain becomes a hero. A lie becomes the truth. It felt like, a, in, in a lot of ways, like a philosophical statement about what this show is. Um, mm, yeah. How did that all come together and, and how did that shape this episode and, and the series? I always knew that storytelling and history would would be, along with time, sort of one of the characters of the show or the use of history. I mean, Harry Seldon invented something called psychohistory where he's using the past to predict the future. And, and you know, predicting the future, you have to decide, well, what data do I put in? What data do I excise? And I'm also fascinated by just the concept of history as well in terms of the, the initial premise of the foundation is that we're going to preserve these these tools, these, you know, certain elements of society so that mankind won't have to start from scratch when a new dark age arrives. But then it we get into it in episode two with Gale and the foundation, the whole na- notion of, well, what's preserved and what's forgotten. And when we look back at our own history, what was preserved and what was forgotten for various ways. And, and, and it's, you know, that aspect of it fascinates me and 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 redacted history mm. fascinates me that concept as well and i just felt like these are things that i kept i kept telling people and maybe this is something interesting for the audience to think about is when when gail is doing this voiceover hopefully it's evident that it's 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 not an omniscient voiceover mm. maybe it's not evident but it's not meant to be an omniscient voiceover. She is, she is, she is saying these words from a distant point in the future, looking back on the events that have happened. And she says in this episode that she may have taken liberties as well, mm. uh, which also goes back to that unreliable narrator. 
you've talked about time as being a character in this and 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 in this narration gail does this a uh, really interesting uh, meta commentary where she she mentions history as a weapon and time being part of that that weapon um what does she mean by that well i again i'm intrigued by the idea of narrative right mm. so there's that that standard phrase history is written by the victors yeah and she says at the beginning of the episode that, you know, what was mankind's greatest invention? And she's basically arguing that history or narrative or storytelling is actually probably the greatest invention because just think about in our own lives, it's all about context and all about a narrative that we weave, whether it's politically, mm-hmm. whether it's socially, and it's sometimes it's it's not even who's got the loudest voice, but who gets their voice in first. But storytelling... And history is by its very nature subjective. It's all edi- editorialized, right? There's there, there's no objective history. Because someone has to tell the story. Yeah. yeah. Someone has to input yeah, someone, the reality. Exactly. And, someone right. has to curate it. Hmm. Someone is choosing to decide on any story, on any history, where mm-hmm. do I begin? Mm-hmm. Where does the story start? Mm-hmm. And where mm-hmm. does the story end? And even that... It, you know, has a huge impact on on how the story is being told. That's like the, the reason why people love biographies, because from a step back, it makes it look like every life decision had its own had shape a, had, and its had, own had repercussion. Purpose, right? It had made sense. You're retroactively, the life made sense. Exactly. You're retroactively applying this plan. Like a structure. To it. The structure Pick, to it choose. that doesn't exist. And right. that, that is with biographies or autobiographies. That is what we're doing or or a good... Uh, any good documentary, right? It's it's totally. It's, people always want to believe. They want to look back on their lives to believe that I, it followed a plan or it was meant to be, right or, or or that the outcome was leading towards something. We want to apply mm-hmm. that to our lives and not feel that it was just this random mishmash which of right, which which it often right. is, but not always. We're always mid chaos. But human beings crave yeah. narrative. Part of that narrative is just trying to understand where this all started, where you came from. This episode opens with mm. a wonderful scene of Salvor and a boss talking about where do we come from? Well, there are lots of different theories. Most of them say that humans originally inhabited a single planetary system. Only one. And we don't even know which. Sirius, Alpha, Centauri. Some people think that we came from someplace called Earth. It's a really sweet moment and also really jarring to hear the word earth Mm. in this show yeah we're not explicit about that at all you know where is this galaxy does is earth a thing unlike star wars is earth is earth a planet that exists within this specific mythology and i thought it would be fun to finally drop that little nugget that earth does but it's a bit different than battlestar galactica but but most of the people in the galaxy don't know where Earth is. Um, and there's a reason for that that we'll reveal later oh. on. This scene, uh, it is really wonderful because, you know, part of the, what we've been talking about has been how easy it is to forget where you came from. Salvor uh, doesn't uh, doesn't quite know where she came from. The Foundation doesn't understand really what they're doing there, the truth of it. Um and one of these questions that we've had, Victoria, is like, is it better sometimes to not know? Is it better to forget? Because these kind of 
traumas can propagate across generations. Do you think, and again, this is maybe a highfalutin question, but is it better? <laughs> it's a highfalutin show. Yeah. Is it better sometimes <laughs> to not know, to go fresh into a new situation, a new place as Salvor, as the foundation are? Well, here's the question is, can you? Can you not know? I mean, part of Salver's thing is like it's just impinging. It's in her. It's in her atoms. It's in her genes about who am I? What's my instinct? What's my instinct in any one um, given situation? But obviously, you have intergenerational trauma. Yeah. You know, and how 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 much does that affect you know post-war Jewish community? How how much does it affect the entire civil rights movement? You know, how can you not be that? How can you start fresh unless you're Demerzel? And even you can't with her because yeah. she loved Cleon the first. Well, no humans start fresh. I mean, we all carry, inter, you know, to varying degrees, intergenerational trauma with yeah. us. We all carry our, our parents and our grandparents and whatnot with us, mm -hmm. literally and figuratively. I hope it's not literal, Dave. Well, it, you, the gen, <laughs> often, most of us, the genetics, you know. Yeah. I saw the corpses in your yeah. car outside. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, one corpse that we must honor today <laughs> is that of our good friend Lewis, who company man to the end and really sacrificed himself in order to uh, get the Invictus to Terminus. Um He's a wonderful little character in that. I think we've all known a person like Lewis who is just like, the boss said to do this and we're doing it. But then here he comes to this place where he does something truly selfless. And I'm like, man, did I underestimate Lewis? Well, I thought that would be nice because he comes across as this sort of frumping, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of middle management guy who wants to follow the rules, who's, who's, who functions largely in the season as this spoiler and this check on Salver's instincts. But how, how fa fantastic is it when he's like, after Harry gets killed and he's like, I'm, I'm in charge now. I'm the director. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's cool. Yeah, totally. It's cool. Everybody's cool. I, I got it. Uh, totally. No, okay, but, but then I thought it was cool because he, he, he's got this, these couple of sweet scenes with Salver um, in the preceding episode, and then and then we realize what he's done in this episode. And I just thought, as a, as a viewer, I like it when characters go in a direction that I wasn't entirely expecting them to go in. And how did he do it? I just how did he wire himself in? <laughs> he basically stabbed he into, into his brainstem. You know this you know hunk of sharp wires, and then and then they were programmed to sort of keep permeating out through the hemispheres of his brain and, and, and plug into various moments. And it's a death sentence. You can't unplug without basically lobotomizing yourself. And then a body is revealed to not be a body when we see our good friend Hugo again. How'd you get here from the belt? Uh, luck, mostly. I made contact with Thespian Command. Right shotgun on one of the lances. <laughs> and then... I could see the Invictus was about to jump, so I grabbed a sedation stick and knocked myself out for the jump. How did Hugo manage to work his way out of this situation? This guy has a million lives. And um, it's set up in episode seven. It is set up. You see these, they have a conversation, Hugo and Salvo, about one of those old mining bases, and they talk about whether or not yeah. they might still be active, and then there's a little look between them, and so the idea was he was going to, intentionally fling himself off the Invictus and and show up again. And 
you know, it's it's a lovely return. Also, when he and Salva are reunited, they those two had great chemistry. And it's funny because in in a season that didn't have a lot in the in terms of like emotional love stories. I mean, I, I do think that Hugo and Selva sort of carry the mm. water for a lot of that this season. You know what's great about Hugo, by the way, is when he becomes anomalous debris. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, rather <laughs> warning anomalous debris yeah. approaching. Um, I will tell you that we were desperate to cast that guy and um Daniel McPherson and we just couldn't find anyone and we were down to the wire where we literally had to get somebody on a plane within days and um one of the other producers had known him from back in australia and suggested that he put himself on tape and he was in, currently in that show strike back and mm-hmm. and um he had just wrapped that show for like he'd been away for like three years and he recorded that audition like in the i'm not kidding like in the bathroom of the airport flying back to australia <laughs> and then by the time he got back to Australia, he'd learned that he'd gotten this part, wow. and then he turned around again wow. and flew back. And it was it was crazy, but he was he was such a lovely guy, and he he brought so much warmth and heart to the season. Thora, stop. You. Take up arms against your own hunters. The hunt is over, Farah. And we must also say goodbye to Farah, uh, who dies by Salvor's hand here. By her own bow. That's by right. her own bow, by, ironically. By the bow that was also gifted in in uh, episode one to Clean the first. Live by the sword, David. Yeah, Live yeah. by the sword. Um, she, it, it's mentioned that the jump, uh, she is probably addled by her being awake during the jump. What effects would that would that have on her? It would cause psychosis. I think. I think if you're awake during the jump, there would probably be longer term cognitive damage and and brain damage and the like. You probably a, a normal human probably couldn't survive more than a few jumps without becoming a vegetable. I think notably Rowan. There is a sense of he didn't want this to happen, but there's also a sense of relief that. A, a weird sense of relief where he's like, is, well, I'm glad that somebody... That scary did, boss lady got iced. I'm glad somebody did this. Like, yeah, um, what was his breaking point? The point where he finally said, I guess this is probably for the best. I think I think Ferris managed to convince her people that there is no other path but just being suicide bombers, effectively. And there's a line that... Um, near the end of the first episode in which Gail says it takes more power to build than to burn. Yeah. Which it does. And it's 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 much harder to build something and much easier to burn something down. And my point with that is it's it's physically harder to build something, but it's also emotionally harder to build something because then you have to mm-hmm. invest in yeah. something and you have to also invest in maybe it not working. And so Farah was just all about short-term screw building. I'm just going to burn. I mean, as a writer, as people who build stories, to, like how how meta does it get when you're talking about building versus destroying these long projects that are incredibly collaborative that you don't know how it's going to turn out? I mean, look, you're a writer as well. Yeah. And it's, uh, 
I it's really hard to start with a blank page. Yeah. I would I would maintain that starting with a blank page is the hardest thing to do uh, in, in film or television. So yeah, there's a little bit of meta in there. Um, Farah, we're gonna a get smidge, to we're a gonna dollop get to, of meta. <laughs> we're gonna get to Harry's uh, uh, return in a second, but um, Farah uh, is trying to destroy the vault with uh, these remote controlled and in- incredibly designed uh, ships. Those ships are cool. They're so they? cool. Yeah, yeah, like could you just for can we just nerd out on the ships for a second? Where did how did how did the design uh, so for this those was, come this about? This was a happy accident. So. The way it's supposed to work on these big crazy shows is is the sequences that involve a lot of visual effects are supposed to be storyboarded. And then we cut those storyboards into like an animatic, which is sort of like a cartoon of the storyboards so that the crew and the cast know what the hell they're doing when yeah. they're reacting right. to a bunch right. of stuff that doesn't exist, like spaceships or aliens or whatnot. And first season, for whatever reason, we ran out of money to previs. So we got on that mountainside with just no idea of what, like, (laughs) so where are these ships going to come from and what are they going to look like and how is that going to work? And, and, you know, the the ships were um, the main vendor, I believe, that did those ships was uh, a VFX company called Rodeo. And um, I just kept saying, show me a ship design that I haven't seen before. I, I want a ship that has personality. And we saw that design and said, that's really neat. And um, when they land, they have this really, they're really interesting. They're like praying mantises or something like that. They're they're just an, I, I don't know, I've not seen a ship like that before. They're cool. They expand after they pivot? They, they well, the guns can sort of flip around and then yeah. they have these little sort of clawed feet that come out mm-hmm. and they're very... Um, they're a little bit anthropomorphized. So uh, right after this, after the attempted destruction of the vault, Harry steps out. Well, this is encouraging. Anacreans, Thespians, and Termini. Seeing you all gathered here gives me hope. We might actually pull this off. Is this what he had in mind all along? A, a version of this, yes. Yes. He predicted that the first crisis would happen at r- roughly within this time period. He predicted that it would involve the Outer Reach, the Anacreans, and um, the Thespans. And he even, um, we'll get into it, predicted that it would involve the hot potato of the Invictus. And in fact, if you go back to episode one and you look at that kind of holographic papyrus sort of thing that he's writing on when Raish is talking to him in a couple of scenes. If you freeze frame and look at what he is writing and drawing, it's it's a uh, diagram of the Invictus in episode one. And he's so he's cagey, isn't he? Yeah. He's very cagey. And, <laughs> and you can clearly see it in a couple of shots. It's the Invictus. And then he takes it and he shrinks it and he moves it over into this little thing of the galaxy and he moves it over to the outer reach because he knew this ship was out there and he knew when and where that ship would show up again. Victoria, what kind of guy is this Harry Seldon who 
He's seemingly covered every angle, although there's certain uh, things that have entered into his calculations that he certainly did not expect, certain abilities that Gale and certainly Salvor have showed. But what is he? He's like, on one hand, incredibly inspiring. And on the other hand, infuriating. Oh, yeah. I would say yeah. the the writers would go back and forth as to whether or not they liked him or didn't like him, right? Well, he's a as little a bit. Character. Like, he's he's like when he's in the laundry room mm-hmm. in the basement and he's getting his shirt, doing his big, you know, um, gathering of the masses, and he's being so inspirational to the to the little man. But then you see him being. Is he jealous of the of the the Gale Raish thing? Do, what was his? We were talking at one point. Like, does he have kids? Remember, there was in the trial he was going to have a wife sitting there. Yeah, in the first draft, there was a, a wife and a, a child um, that were watching, uh, and then for a variety of reasons that we won't get into on, on this podcast, we <laughs> decided to change it. But maybe in a future podcast, we can talk about it. Who knows? Um, he. I wanted him to be a polarized... He's not a polarizing figure in the books. He only really exists in the first two stories. He doesn't have to be a polarizing figure because then he becomes a character that other people talk about yeah. and and debate. And, um, and in the books, he has just left these series of pre-recorded messages. He's not interactive. But, I mean, I knew that once... Harry would continue on in the show as a, maybe not a man, but an entity that Mm -hmm. a person that people can interact with, who's not just a series of recordings, that there's no way that he couldn't not become a polarizing figure, which is what I wanted. Where do you land on him now, Victoria, on Harry Seldon? I don't like him. I don't feel like he's as selfless and wants to save anybody. I think he's in it for his ego. Um, as we yeah. know, as okay. we know from these scenes of Gail being like, I, I let me out. I hate you. I would rather, you know, self-immolate than actually continue with your plan. You know? But it's it's funny. There was genuine debate in the writer's room about Harry and his plan and his designs and how much was ego and how much wasn't, which I found exciting. I mean, yeah. th- I, th- I thought that was interesting. I hope the audience debates. How much do you think, Victoria, in your mind, is he aware of his own motivations? I think he would tell himself that he's 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 the singular ego who can save the entire galaxy. He's doing what he must. Right. Right. But at the end of the day, it's when he's looking at himself in the mirror, he's like, I'm so much smarter than everybody else. You know? <laughs> like, he d- certainly thinks he's smarter than most everyone else. Um, well, we've answered. I-, I can't ask you at the end of this episode what is in the vault. Um, but will there is there more? Yes. There's more. It's a pinata. There are, there are other. It's there full are, of candy. Yes. Oh, we talked about that. <laughs> yeah, it's, like a, really? it's a giant yeah, Pez. It's a giant it's awesome. Pez dispenser. <laughs> um, and it just it just keeps spitting out giant, giant hairy tablets. Size. Yeah, yeah. hairy tablets. No. Um, it's uh yeah. There's more in the vault. There are other secrets to reveal in the vault, which hopefully in success get really really interesting. Some of my favorite stuff in this episode is Dawn 
his travel to the scar, which evokes this real the whole relationship with Azura really evokes a, a kind of fairy tale relationship. We talked about that. The prince and the pauper yeah. kind yeah. of yeah. Uh, vibe. And it's wonderful watching him experience life really for the first time as just a person, an anonymous person. Well, and I did not see the twist I did not coming. see the twist coming. I thought <laughs> No was, one does. No I, one does. I thought it would be, you know, they're doing this thing and it's got to go wrong. There's a million billion different ways that this can just fall apart, but I did not see it being part of a larger plot. Um That was completely deliberate. I kept telling everybody, let's write this like it's a YA novel, like it is Prince of the Popper, like it is, you know, and just punch everyone in the heart. Because there are mislead moments, like when they're on the yeah. balcony and she's yeah. like, you could push me or I could yeah. push you. And you're like, oh, that's very cute. Yeah. You know, that's romance. It was it was legitimately romantic. I was moved it by was it. Meant, it was you meant fell to be. for it, man. It I did. I fell for it. One hundred percent. I fell for it hard. But what's also cool is it's and and correct me if so your son is colorblind. He is. And we were always writing towards a story where Dawn had been altered. And we were talking about distinguishing things left hand, right hand, whatnot. I don't know if the colorblindness, I don't think that's something that existed before you joined the room. I mm. think that came up as a result of mm -hmm. you talking about your son. Mm -hmm. And I just loved that a plot point could turn on something like that with the mural. I knew you had the greatness of Cleon the first in you. But during our hunt, I realized there was something else inside you as well. I'll leave you to reflect on your own glorious moment. Take your time. Appreciate the subtleties. It is such a gut punch moment because Dawn's paranoia has been steadily building over the course of the time we've spent with him. And Dusk is acting so weird at the end of it yeah. <laughs> uh, that it is really it is a heartbreaking, fear inducing moment when uh he uses the devices that allows him to see color and sees that, oh, no, Dusk knows about the guilty raptor. Yeah. Dusk is on to him. You know, this was, again, we always talked about, you know, best case scenario for him would be exile, worst case, death. Yeah. Since the time he became aware that he was different, he also became aware that he, he was constantly in danger. Mm. Um, that if he picked up a glass the wrong way, he would be in danger. That if people realized he was colorblind, he would be in danger. That if they realized he didn't like brassica, he would be in danger. <laughs> That's right. Bitter, very yeah. bitter. There's a wonderful uh, a chase escape scene as we see Dawn uh, flee from the palace. I have to ask about the, you know, from either the production and directing standpoint of writing that scene because it's really pulse pounding, and it also feels like. When he's standing at the edge of the of the of, of the water, a nod to the fugitive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and uh, we talked about that, and we couldn't find any location to do it in, and we were going to scrap it, and then we were shooting that in Malta, and they have a series of water tanks, and we went over to the big tank that they call it. It takes day a week to fill. Oh wow. 
and um and we started wondering well what if we just like toss some water down the side of that and he can slide down it and is it possible and anyway cassie and the actor really did that which was cool yeah just like big giant slip and slide uh he's really gets to show his range in this because he plays two different versions of Don and they are distinct. Like he is even down to the accent changing, even down to that. That is a wonderful moment when he is presented with this alternate version of himself. And I was just uh, entranced by how separate and different they really were. Cassian's an incredible actor. I think he was 20 when we cast him. So he's quite young and he does it in an American accent flawlessly. We got so used to him speaking in an American accent that when he speaks in his native accent as other Don, it's it's it really jars you. And then there's those moments where he kind of flops back and forth between mm-hmm. the British to the American, and it's it's just really interesting. Victoria, did you have like a an idea of the writers have an idea of what the personality of other Don? He's definitely a little more ruthless. I love that moment where uh, Don. So I can't remember what the line is. Don has a line and other Don just just pantomimes him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like you with your, you know, pathetic, arrogant, self-pitying air. I've been practicing my role long enough. The cloistered little tyrant in the making. Projecting that subtle air of self-pitying, arrogant indifference. Practicing? What are you talking about? Practicing? What are you talking about? That story, Mm -hmm. the whole purpose of that story was to have the audience empathize Mm -hmm. with a Cleon, you know, really Mm -hmm. empathize with um, a Cleon. And I think that story does it effectively because from his perspective, these rebels seem like monsters. I mean, they're going to, they've done all this stuff and they're going to kill him. And he, he seems to be like a, kid that wants to lean into change mm-hmm. and and they and from his perspective they are monsters but from their perspective the cleons are monsters and have been monsters mm-hmm. for over 400 years and so it's any means necessary yeah you know when he says how could you do this to me yeah and like, what are you talking about about you buddy like yeah like no. you're how could you do this to the galaxy right no victoria do you think it would be better if Dusk was the primary emperor. I keep I as I'm watching them, it's interesting to me that the younger one who is maybe a little more fiery mm-hmm. is the lead guy. Should they have differentiated should they have changed that up? Well, you can say what what makes a good leader and is it yeah. raging testosterone and impulsive huge decision rent the empire, you yeah. know, by impulsive decision. Um or is it a more measured you know, um, you've seen more. You know what to be, how to be selective, and you're moving. I mean, I I think we I need mean, the days of the world, don't we? Uh, or the or the, you mean the dusks? No, I was yeah. thinking about day. The day. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's. Uh, um, I don't know. It's hard. I mean, one could argue that if the various dusks had been in charge over the course of the season as dusks and not as days, yeah. that maybe things might not have spiraled out of control so quickly. But that is interesting when you talk about Dawn having been um, existing in a state of constantly needing to be taught yeah. to yeah. get to the moment. Day, living completely in the moment of what's happening right there. Dusk, even even going so far as him painting the mural, being uh, 
obsessed with the legacy and how right. will I be remembered? Exactly. And you're going to be remembered like this. Your biographers are going to not deign you no more interesting because you made the pheasant that way. <laughs> it's time for another game of building the foundation. We want to know more about the incredible world that you two have built. Uh, and this is our light speed round. Um, are you ready? I'm ready. Something to build upon. You'll be allowed to build your foundation. A foundation. Are all the Cleons tainted now? We can't answer that question. <sighs> I think I wasn't going to answer it anyway. We found our new vault question, I think. One of them has been <laughs> tainted. Tainted um, Cleon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How does the control scheme of the whether it's the Thespian Lancers or the Beggar, how does how does one control these ships? The the user interface. Yeah, what that's is what it? you're asking? Yeah. How how, how do does you fly the, it? how do the user interface <laughs> for the various alien ships work? It seems like it's it's uh very ergonomic. Yeah. But how did you come up with the various <laughs> control schemes for these? They all had to be different. Um, to a certain extent, the user interface and the technology we wanted a little bit to reflect um, the cultures. It's it's a fascinating but also time-consuming thing where you go through tons and tons of iterations <laughs> where you just say, well, how opaque or not should that user interface be? And, and what should the colors be? And, you know... What should the shapes of the little warning things be? It, it's a it's a it's a it's a fine art. Dusk mentions to Dawn that they need to wait until day arrives uh, from his trip to the maiden. Is the imperial propaganda machine like swinging into uh, into action regarding uh, the the trip to the spiral? It seems like this would be very sure. effective. Sure, I mean he's come home victorious, but also. That's what we always wanted with the storyline is that he would come home victorious, but personally feel like he lost something. And so there's that great shot where um, basically Dawn says, well, surely it's not up to you. It's up to day to decide my fate. Mm -hmm. And he says, that's true. You better hope that his experience on the maiden was serene, which (laughs) clearly (laughs) it wasn't. And finally... We know what's in the vault now, right? Ish, sure. (laughs) Harry Harry walks out. Okay, thanks for (laughs) listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman and Barry Finkel. Our senior managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Ahmud Ali Akbar and Jonathan Shiflett. Darby Maloney is our senior editor and Hannes Brown mixed this episode. Our composer is Carly Bond and I am Jason Concepcion. Victoria David, thank you for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Or my pleasure. I don't know. Pleasure for you. <laughs> Stop speaking for me. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>